1: Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. We're gearing up for our next season to begin. Season 13, to be exact. That's right. And all season long, we'll be looking at past awards categories and discussing the nominated films.
0: We're kicking off our new season with a series looking at the 1940 Academy Award Best Picture
1: nominees. But back in season five, we discussed six of the ten nominees. Because of that, we're releasing those episodes now so that you can get ready for this series.
0: That's right. We're going to release those episodes from 2015 and 2016, in which we discussed Gone with the Wind, Goodbye, Mr. Chips mr smith goes to washington ninotchka stagecoach and the wizard of oz and to top it off we'll be streamlining those older episodes a bit so they're just focusing on the films themselves so thank you
1: everybody for downloading and listening to the next reel we appreciate your time and attention and we hope you enjoy the show
0: so pete yeah what do they got that i ain't got
2: courage You can say that again. (laughs) Many, many miles east of nowhere lies the amazing land of Oz, a magnificent empire created in the mind of a man who wrote a great book about it. Like wildfire in the wheat field, the fabulous tale of the Wizard of Oz spread from town to city to nation to the entire world. Although the Wizard of Oz has captivated the children of four generations, and fire the imaginations of those youthful adults who have never grown old. Although ten million copies of the book have reached eager hands and eager hearts, no one has dared the towering task of giving life and reality to the land of ours and its people. Every delightful character of L. Frank Baum's classic is now reborn. Every glorious adventure has been recaptured and painted with a rainbow. The celebration in Munchkinland. The Flying Monkeys. The rescue of Dorothy, the castle of the witch, the palace of Oz, and Dorothy's strange journey to the Emerald City to find the wonderful wizard of Oz himself. We off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. We hear he is the wizard of whiz, if ever a Wizard there was, if ever were oh, ever a Wiz there was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because
1: because of the wonderful things he does. Andy according to my friend internet this is what letterboxd is Oh, yes. The tale of a young murderess misused by a community of gleeful cowards for her uncanny skill and naivete. Her dog is also present. <laughs> it's true.
0: Um, yes, I guess. She, is, is it fair to call her a murderess? Is she intentionally dropping her house? <laughs> this poor woman.
1: <laughs> was, was she not sent to dispose of the witch? <laughs> Wow. Uh, that is too funny. I this is uh we actually watched this as a double feature Wizard of Oz and American Psycho in my house. <laughs>
0: that is that is That, that should have been really a series. <laughs> oh man, too funny. You know, I I really love this movie. I mean, it just um I don't know. I it's one of those movies that um it's always worked for me, and uh, as a kid, it's just something I really connected with, and as an adult, I still connect with it. I can easily just sit back and watch, and yes, as somebody who can look at stuff critically, um, now as opposed to when I was uh, seeing this as a young child, there certainly are some, I guess you would call them, kind of just story points and issues that I, I think probably I don't think work as well but to be honest those are in a movie like this I, I just don't know how much i care and it's really hard for me to uh to accept any uh critical side from my brain when i'm watching it i just i just kind of turn that off and just go with it
1: i, I i'm with you i <laughs> I don't know. I don't want this to be a complete, you know, love-in for Wizard of Oz, but it's one of those movies that just sort of, you know, as soon as the music starts, it just kind of greases the skids for me to turn off that uh, the hypercritical part of my brain. And I'm, I, I find that it just touches. It's, it's such a beautiful kind of textbook, um, uh, cinematic story. You know, it sort of hits all of the right points, and, and that with the incredible color and vibrance and the crazy voices and, uh, you know, I, I think learning more about it in research for this conversation has just made me love it and sometimes question it but love it mostly even more uh the script is from uh, noel langley florence ryerson edgar Allan wolf along uh, and uh God, i mean it, it came together with a lot of people yeah i mean uh, those those it.
0: are the credited writers yeah <laughs> I mean, Langley ended up being the fourteenth writer who had worked on this thing. I mean, there were a lot of people who came and went as they worked on this thing, kind of fashioning the script. But yeah, the three people who ended up receiving credit are Langley, Ryerson, and uh Wolf.
1: You know, it's a funny thing this film because it was also, you know, directed by a number of people, uh many uncredited people. And usually, when we have films that that cross that line of of having too many people in the in the writers too many chair cooks. and too many, yeah, too many cooks. It, the movie ends up confusing and just crazy, and and in this case, I'm, you know, may, maybe just that the the journey itself was so such a crazy acid trip that you know uh, it that didn't matter.
0: Yeah, it's although it's funny, I I you know I, I made a note that it was very funny that George Cukor, who spent a little time on this film. Although it didn't actually shoot anything, but it really was kind of his second film in 1939 that was shot in black and white with a fashion show by Adrian in glorious Technicolor right in the middle.
1: (laughs) That's a great connection.
0: It was, uh, you know, it's it's very funny that uh, that ended up working out. And I think George Cukor, I don't know, I feel like he ended up getting the short end of the stick in 1939 because he kind of, you, you know, he helped out a little bit here. I think that was good. But then he went to do The Women and, you know, he helped out on uh, Gone with the Wind, but uh, that didn't go didn't so well. not work out,
1: yeah. Uh, well, George. Uh, poor George. But, but in the end, the film that came out of it was terrific. It's an adaptation from the book, uh, the series of books. I have not read any more than the the series uh then that part of the series by l frank baum um but uh, uh have you read the book when's the last time you hit the book
0: i actually have never read the book and um no and and i know l frank baum wrote uh, 14 uh books 14 oz books and then since then it has been just a series that has been continued by uh, many people um in book form in graphic novel i mean it's just it's never really ended i, I think the official Baum, you know, family has kind of sanctioned a a good number of those books. And, you know, I actually just picked up for my kids on the Kindle, you can buy for like the entire set of all 14 of uh, Baum's books for like four bucks. So I just got all those and now my daughter started reading them. So that's Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna have to look into that. Uh, any so, uh, what do you what do you hear about changes from the book? I mean, did they? Uh, how much of it has been uh, mutilated for screen?
0: It's it's one of those books that I, I think that it's it's fair to say they um, followed pretty closely. I think there are some changes um, throughout. I mean, inevitably there are going to be changes that have to get made, and uh, things like you know, in the book, the uh, the uh, shoes were silver. And uh, they they changed them to ruby slippers for the movie, and really that was uh, because of the Technicolor and silver just didn't show up very well in Technicolor, and so they wanted a color that was a little more vibrant and uh, decided to do it with uh, with ruby because that would pop so much. And um, they and the whole Kansas, the bit in Kansas, um, kind of the open close of the film, that was really an addition to the, to this film, because in the, uh, in the book, I mean, I think it's like, you know, the third page, all of a sudden the tornado comes and whoosh, she's gone off to Kansas. And in the movie, they, they kind of treat it like the whole thing. The whole trip to Oz is really a dream. Whereas in the book, this tornado kind of takes her house and actually deposits her in Oz. So it's actually much more of her actually going there and uh, all the stuff about you know the different connections of you know the three farmhands to her three friends and the and the nasty miss gulch to the witch all that stuff was just kind of uh you know stuff that was added so i mean it was it's a lot of that sort of stuff i think for the most part they they got the core of the story and i think that's that really is the key here
1: I, yeah, and I think it's it's fascinating just how well it holds up in in the in the film, and that's what you know. Last week, I I made the point that my you know I said that we were going to watch this for family movie night, and my kids are boring. Turns out it wasn't. I think they really really enjoyed it. You know, what is it that you think connects with such a wide range of uh, such a wide demographic? You know, why is it that you and I can be so well connected to this film, and so can our you know young kids?
0: You know, for me, I think it boils down to uh, a few things. One, I think it's it's kind of, I guess you could say it's kind of a hero's journey type of story It's this this person who's put into this environment, um, not by choice, who then has to, uh, you know, kind of. Buck up and find some strength to uh, pursue this this journey so that she can find her way home. And over the process of that, learn and grow and kind of become a stronger person. And I think, as a young kid watching that and seeing Dorothy's journey as she's uh, one, I think you know, Judy Garland is just so easy to connect with at, uh, at for any age. I think there's something really honest about her performance, but I think it's just the way that it's written and this this character who has to, Kind of find, uh, find herself and find this strength to take this journey to one, get to the Emerald City and then from there go and get the broomstick from the witch and, and just, and then really evaluate. I think that's kind of a, a key part of this story that she has to, um, stand there, you know, the, when Glinda comes down after Dorothy misses her balloon ride, Glinda comes down and talks to her and it's like, you know, you've, you weren't ready at the time and you had to really learn about why you know what it would take to go home and and Dorothy has to kind of talk about it and realize the importance of home the importance of uh and not just home i i think home is kind of a, a grander thing not just like the the physical presence of her home but it's it's the core of being with those people that mean something to her and i think that message is another key thing that uh, that people can so easily attach to is is what does that mean to you and finding that place in the world and that's really what this film is about for me and i think that's why people from all
1: ages can connect to it so easily yeah i mean we're teaching kids you can get what you want by killing the elderly hell yeah yeah <laughs> Uh what I you know what I I think is is so wonderful about it is that, you know some of these moments I think when we meet these early the the characters early on you know they have such really kind of nice uh, naive young sort of uh, conversations with you know with uh you know Judy Garland uh with Dorothy you know as we meet the farmhands and as we meet uh Auntie M and and then we get to go meet Professor Marvel uh and and he takes advantage of her Uh, Early on and and we get to sort of see what is that is that really what they what they do with the with the uh, as he's staring into the uh, what is that thing the ball crystal ball the crystal ball. It's fantastic. How is he uh, taking advantage over there? Well, you know, I mean, he's like he's like tricking her. Just close he's, your eyes, and then he's yeah. looking at her picture, and he's he's you know looking at a picture which he's, he's like taking advantage, he's like demonstrating what it is um, to quote sort of read somebody um, in an inauthentic way.
0: Well, yeah. If if this was a less innocent film, Professor Marvel could have really uh, turned this film into room
1: <laughs> that you took it darker than I intended. <laughs> i wasn't much, quite much sure darker. which direction you were going with, No, that but, was yes. room was darker than i Than this was not <laughs> that was you were responsible for that in the international <laughs> itunes comments blame andy that was on me <laughs> but i think you know i think we need to see that because that's about as real and as sort of grimy as the film ever gets really besides i guess the flying monkeys but but we need to see that, you know, we need to see that the real world is sort of like that because as soon as it gets into fantastical uh, the the sort of fantastic uh, journey of Oz, you know, we have to have something to kind of compare it to. It's color versus black and white. It's, it's um, you know, it's something to kind of represent. And we also have this character as in Professor Marvel who comes back and, and, and he's sort of, his he has his own character redemption in that particular portrayal at the very end of the film when he comes to check on her. And I think that's a, that ends up being a really nice, uh, kind of bookend.
0: Yeah. And I think what's also important is that, uh, they, they structure this film with, uh, such broad characters that are big. And I think that also helps people really connect with them. I think you get such just, um, amazing performances from from uh you know Judy like I already said as Dorothy but also you know her friends and the witch I mean everyone is is just painted so well as a very particular character that it's so easy to kind of pinpoint them without having to spend too much time trying to kind of sort out their psyche and everything and sure you know they all have these little these character flaws which I I think that is a real interesting uh strength with this film also is how everybody is portrayed as as somebody who's struggling with an issue that they're trying to overcome in their life and it's it's a great way for kids to get a sense now i mean it, it's it's sorted out pretty easily in, in the end but it, but it is kind of really nice how everybody is trying to find a way to deal with you know if i only had the brains if i only had courage if i only had a heart if i only you know could get home and just trying to deal with those sorts of things it's it's a really interesting uh, way for young people to start learning about how you can you know make changes to yourself and improve yourself
1: yeah i th- i think so um it it's it's funny because then oz becomes uh you know her subconscious right i mean it's where she's processing everything that she has taken in uh, about the people in her real life you know as soon as she gets there she gets to see them and their faces and them them going through their own personal journey and that's that's where she gets to come to terms with what she's experiencing i think that ends up being a very powerful metaphor that, that you don't necessarily need but for me it actually makes uh, it, it makes um, it makes the movie better
0: yeah absolutely and you know i've i've heard some people complaining that you know oh you know Dorothy it's it's not even she doesn't learn that much she's she kills this witch completely by accident it's all this this happenstance situation she's trying to put out this fire because the witch sets scarecrow on fire and she's trying to throw this bucket of water on that and ends up getting the witch wet and the witch dies and it's just one of those moments where it's like okay the, the antagonist dies really easily but that's if you also look at the witch as the antagonist. I think, really, the wizard is largely the antagonist of the film, and the witch is the witch is kind of a sub-antagonist, if you will. I mean, obviously, it's a, a key character, but really, her battle is with the wizard and trying to get home. And I think that the learning moment for her happens after she's left behind in the balloon, like I've already said, and, and having to really kind of sort through those uh, things.
1: Right. And, and she and her friends had to use their wits to, to like break their way through the, the curtain that was both the metaphorical curtain and the character curtain of the wizard to actually get him on, on their side and turn him. I think that's a really good point. Like the, and, and it's easy to mistake the witch as the antagonist, but she's really not. She's another obstacle in the journey. Yeah,
0: but man, what a great obstacle. I mean, she's, I mean, you talked about how, you know, Professor Marvel is kind of the worst of it, but man, the witch, I mean, she just says some things that I'm like, man, You you know, what is it like? Uh, the thing, pocket full of spears, and you know, it's you know, we'll we'll torture them slowly, or you know, just the way that she says these. Man, yeah. no wonder when they uh, uh, were re-editing this film, they had to cut out a lot of the witch's lines because kids were so terrified of her that they were parents were having to carry them out of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's pretty good. The cynic in me uh this this round as i was watching it i was kind of like you know okay so the beginning of the film we have miss gulch who comes and gets toto because toto has been a menace and she's going to take toto to the sheriff so the sheriff can destroy him and miss gulch is terrible and all that and then as she's driving uh, away on her bicycle uh, toto hops out and runs back to dorothy well yes Ray. the dog
1: is so threatening that we put him in a light wicker basket that's right that's right <laughs> but i love how um
0: you know if you if you pay attention to this film it's like okay so there's a tornado dorothy gets knocked unconscious when she comes to everything's hunky dory but if you think about it okay so miss gulch is probably going to realize you know after the tornado you know that dog got away i'm going to go back to that house and get him it's like okay so is toto is that the end of toto that <laughs> Is Toto going to die? Like, post Wizard of Oz, she comes back and gets Toto and takes him back in a lockbox and, and throws him into the water. Like, what happens? Andy, I there?
1: think we all know that the next day, Toto went off to live on another farm with the family. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's all we need to tell the kids.
0: Yes. Don't tell them, children. No, this yeah. is it's 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 this is what happens when you're adult and you start thinking yeah. about these things too much. <laughs> oh, it's terrible! It is terrible. I also thought it was funny that this is like a precursor to uh, Lassie and all those films where you know you've get this dog that barks and everybody just kind of understands what the dog is saying when Toto comes up to Scarecrow and Lion and the Tin Man and starts barking and they know, oh, we gotta follow you because you know where Dorothy <laughs> is and they just run off with it. It's like I, I love that. I love that uh that this is kind of the cinematic Innocence. start of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's yeah. right. And and she doesn't have very many friends. Like we don't get to so she's so she hangs out in a barn all day.
0: Yeah, just hanging out with the farmhands. Yeah. You know what's interesting about that is initially there was going to be a relationship. With uh, um, uh, Dorothy, I, I, I don't, wanna, I don't know if relationship's the right word. But they I were going guarantee to be,
1: you that that is not uh, the it, right. It's, word. It's
0: completely the wrong word. But she was going to have a a, a strong friendship with uh, Hunk, the um, uh, the guy who is the Scarecrow, and that relationship um, was going to be a, a strong friendship. In the, in the regular world in Kansas. And that's why at the end of the film, she still says, in the, in the current version, she still says, I'm going to miss you most of all because there was going to be more of this, uh, you know, precursor to a romance between the two of them.
1: Why is it that that didn't, uh, that didn't make it? I wonder. you know well it's not so much that i i want i mean i wonder really legitimately because i feel like you watch the film and they go into oz and they have the strongest of the relationships he's the the scarecrow is the first one that she meets and they end up walking arm in arm the longest through the course of the film and and i think that's a that is the strongest of the relationships i i mean but you know because the way you say it i mean you say it the way you say it it, it sounds illicit and we know that it's not illicit they can have a, a strong relationship um you know uncle Niece, kind of a relationship, but you know, I, it makes me wonder: was it cut for like some sort of purient like value system, or was it cut for time, or or what? You know what I mean?
0: Well, I think I I think some of it was uh, time. I think a lot of stuff was cut for time, but I'll, also I think there was a. Um There was supposed to be a feeling that, you know, there was that this would develop into a relationship once she kind of grew up. I mean, that's kind of what I read about it. So I don't know. I'm not saying it's it's an illicit relationship that was supposed to happen right now. It was just supposed to feel like these two, as she grew up, it was, you know, he was the guy for her.
1: Hmm. Okay. That's a
0: little weird. All right. I I think that's why they got it because it's just weird.
1: Well, and maybe it would have been different had it been Shirley Temple playing Dorothy and not uh, a much more mature-looking Judy Garland.
0: Yeah, I think uh, that also does. It. You know, it, I don't know why all of a sudden this strikes me as the uh the relationship in phantom menace but it's the same sort of thing it's like you know i have a hard time buying that natalie portman fell in love with jake lloyd if jake lloyd was portrayed by a 12 year old like he was initially scripted yeah i would have had an easier time buying that they could have fallen in love you know
1: yeah i don't as, know where as it why, is a, why
0: i'm comparing phantom menace
1: Boss*. Yeah, I, I was gonna say as it is i i think you regret that comparison already i do i do <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. oh dear okay can we talk about victor fleming now yes victor fleming aka mr fix it so this guy was a former stunt driver that's yeah. awesome a professional race car driver gone film director
0: He's, uh, he is a really fantastic guy. And, you know, I think he's one of those directors that uh, you just don't give a lot of credit to. Um, but he's, uh, he's pretty spectacular. I think uh, that uh, you
1: look at kind of his body of work, he's got a lot of good stuff in there. Fifty credits um, uh, through 1956. Uh, and, and some of them I have seen and like very much. Uh, but some of his best work was as a cinematographer, and uh, starting in in the early 1900s, 1916, 17, he did uh, he did a number of uh, of films as cinematographer, and then director for the early Douglas Fairbanks films. Um, what do you What do you like so much about him?
0: You know, he's he, I I think he's a director who just has a a solid sense of storytelling. I I think what I've Gleaned from watching this and Gone with the Wind, uh, both of which he uh, is, you know, responsible for in 1939. This is a guy who can come onto a project, and he just seems to have a strong sense of of storytelling and how to tell a story, whether it is a an incredible epic about the Civil War. And people in it, or if it's a fantastical uh, film that's you know aimed in kind of I guess you could say in the in the world of of kids, but can can really tap into the magic and the uh, just the characters and the strengths in both of those stories and find the right way to tell both of them. I think the fact that he did both of these films uh, just is a real testament for what he can do. And knowing that he came onto this film as I believe the third director. Um, you know Richard Thorpe was first. They weren't very impressed with him. I think he worked for nine or ten days. And um, and they had to stop production because Buddy Epson, who at the time was playing Tin Man, um, had to leave the production because he got um, aluminum dust poisoning from the aluminum dust they were painting him with, uh, kind of foolishly at the time. So at the same time, they had to stop production to let Buddy Epson go heal up and find a new Tin Man. Um, they brought in, uh, or they looked at the footage and realized that uh, Thorpe was just just churning out stuff that wasn't good at all. He made Dorothy kind of look like a baby. A lot of weird things. So they got rid of him, brought in George K-Corps to kind of help stuff while they figured things out. And George Qcor actually helped find a better direction for Dorothy, um, found a better direction for the witch, a lot of that sort of stuff uh, also cast Jack Haley as the tin man. And then they brought in, um, uh, Fleming and he, he had like days to prepare for this film. And he jumped on, um, just whole hog, uh, went full steam and, uh, worked for months cranking out all sorts of great stuff he did all the stuff in technicolor and then he ended up having to leave because he got the call to head over to uh to selznick's to do gone with the wind and so he did all the technicolor stuff and then uh, he had to leave before he could do the kansas stuff and so actually uh king vidor came in to do all the kansas sequences and uh but I think that it's, it's really impressive that Fleming was able to just tap into exactly what this film needed, the way that the actors needed to perform, the way that the, uh, the story needed to flow and get it all right to create an incredibly magical world. Cause it's, it, I, you know, I'm hard pressed looking at this and Gone with the Wind and really, uh, feeling like there's a lot of, um, uh, like he was just pulling the same tricks in both films. I think he he does them both with a lot of uh, the right moves for the right stories that uh, the right. Type of story that he was telling in each case.
1: I think so too, and I think this one showcases just how simple, uh, how a simple story, a, a simple visual story, can be. Um, you know, really touching in a way that that I, I think Gone with the Wind offers so much more complexity uh, in in the way it handles the visuals and leads us through the the journey of those characters. This one, it's it's very straightforward. I mean, we go to this place, and then we follow, as you said. I mean, this is, you know Joe Campbell would be thrilled. Uh, it, it is. a a textbook hero's journey and he he does it so clean right i mean he just plays it really so clean that there's there's no way to get lost there's no way to get to to get sort of feel misled i think it just is it's just perfect yeah it really is uh, and and you don't ever feel like any of the over the top performances are out of place right that was something that that hit me this time that it you know the witch could have could have felt wildly out of place in in another director's hands, and this you know everything met in just the the right way the the lion could have felt terrifically out of place uh in in another director's hands and i think he he just really captured all the right people at all the right time so i
0: love well, it i think and i think that i like I was saying about um uh, the previous director, Richard Thorpe. Thorpe, like, had, had Dorothy wearing a blonde wig and had her wearing, like, really intense makeup to make her look like kind of this baby doll. Like, it's, I, I don't know exactly what Thorpe was going for, but I think Cukor and uh, then Fleming were smart enough, like you said, to just tap into the right things and just find the right way to tell the story. And yeah, I, I as big as these characters are, they always feel so authentic to me.
1: Well, because it's so easy to see Dorothy. Uh, to, to, I, I can absolutely see where Thorpe would have wanted to go with Dorothy as kind of a toy to put her into Munchkinland and make her fit in there as if she went in through some transformation through some crazy narnia door and ended up in this land and somehow her persona had changed i disagree with that i think the the way they ended up uh, doing this under in fleming's hands to to take her and put make her a real person in this crazy wonderful world actually highlights the contrast in a way that is really special
0: well and it could have also come from the fact that dorothy is much younger in the books yep
1: that's true yeah, um, it could have been in the hands of uh, uh, Mervyn Leroy. We've talked about him. Yes, we have on uh, the Bad Seed. I think uh, it, yeah. I think this would have been an interesting mashup.
0: This The, the Wizard seed.
1: of the Bad Seed, yes. <laughs> Make Dorothy be, be the playwright was... as the Bad Seed. Hey, she's already killing a witch.
2: <laughs> she's see? got a taste for it now. <laughs> That's
1: right. <laughs> Dorothy, the Wizard of Oz, the little girl has a taste for blood. <laughs> oh, I can man. see it now.
0: That's pretty funny. That's great.
1: Glad he didn't get to direct.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, he wasn't quite ready. Uh, Mayor didn't feel he was uh, really ready for it at the time, and I, I think it it ended up in the right hands. But uh, you know, I mean, we talked about Leroy. He ended up uh, directing, and you know, he's a guy who uh, did a lot of good stuff. I mean, I mean, he started. Geez, he started working in the uh, in the 20s, And so, uh, you know, he's just one of those guys who's done lots of great stuff. And um, this is just one of them. And I think he was really a solid producer, clearly, because he, you know, as a producer with changing directors, changing actors, all that sort of stuff. Found the right people to bring it and and uh, bring it to fruition, yeah I think so too um
1: let's start uh busting through the cast, shall we
0: um I just also wanted to just point out Arthur Freed was on as an associate producer on this, and arthur freed he wasn't credited, but he really is the guy you know i I think we have to give a lot of credit to him because he ended up um as kind of the guy who brought the musical talent to this film, I mean, he is the guy who who hired the the key core, you know, Herbert Stothart, uh, Harold Arlen, and uh, Yip Harburg as the uh, as the musical people, and I, I think that is a huge element as, that what is uh, as, as to what makes this film uh, what it is. So yeah. Arthur Freed, who would go on to be a uh, quite an important producer in film after this.
1: All right. Now let's talk about the cast. Can we talk about Judy Garland? Yes. Um,
0: Boy, I tell you, I mean, she is so good. And I just, it's so weird watching her thinking that, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know, much about kind of like the stories of mgm if she really was um getting all these drugs by the studio as far as you know these young stars her and uh, mickey rooney that they were giving them drugs to uh give them energy to work long days and then uh, to help them sleep all night and you know i i really don't know how much of that is true but um it's, it's just shocking to look at this young 16-year-old girl who I think is just so perfect for this role and just, you know, it kind of breaks my heart that it's entirely possible that she was already an addict at this time. Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a shame to even think about. Uh, she was terrific. She was, um, she, was, uh, she was on the verge of becoming a woman.
2: Uh, they had
1: her tie to wear a tight corset to minimize her breasts to make her look young uh and she was in competition with this i think briefly they had they did have shirley temple in the running for this film who was 11 at the time and uh, obviously looked much younger uh but i think it would have been a very different movie
0: well and they even realized that i mean listening to people talk about it they realized that you know shirley temple as much as she kind of might fit this young dorothy from the books um she doesn't really have the uh, the, the mental understanding of what it would really take to deliver a performance in a film like this. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I mean, yeah. She was terrific. She's, she really is good. And, you know, honestly, I've been thinking about it and I can't name, um, another 16 year old girl who has carried a film in a lead performance that has stuck with me as, as well as this one have. I, I just can't name a single one. Oh, I got one. What? Haley Steinfeld,
1: True Grit. Oh, wait, I got say, another one. I got a, I, Natalie no, Portman, you, the professional. No, uh, that... that well, Christian I mean, Bale, it, Empire of the Sun. Boom. That
0: carries the film. A 16-year-old... I don't know. I, I don't think that uh, Haley Steinfeld carries that film. What? No, I, I think that's Jeff Bridges carrying that film.
1: Uh I don't know about you.
0: She's she's great, but I think Jeff Bridges carries that film.
1: Hmm. Likewise, well, likewise with Leon. Jeff Bridges is a 16-year-old. True Grit. I'm just imagining now. I'm just... It's a thought experiment. <laughs> nice. All nice. right, all right. Frank Morgan plays everybody in this film.
0: Yes, six six roles. Uh, Professor Marvel, the wizard, the doorman, the cabbie, the guard. And it says the doctor. I'm not quite sure who the doctor is, but I, I think that it's actually just the wizard's head is my understanding of what the sixth role is.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. Because I don't, I don't know if there's a doctor. Can you uh, name a doctor? I can't name a doctor. No. Interesting tidbit. Mickey Rooney um later in his life i think it was in the in the 1980s when there was a stage version of the wizard of oz he actually played the wizard
1: uh i did not know that uh what about uh let's go through the i don't have anything else to say about frank morgan he was great
0: he's great he's yeah, he's, he's great as
1: everything he's a he's a charismatic circus performer and i think he did a terrific job in every character he played they were all the same in different clothes
0: apparently one of them i i, I can't remember if it's the i want to say it's the doorman um there's a part where his mustache he's he like his mustache is pointing up at one point and then it's pointing down at another point. And there's a cut scene. And because I guess he actually talks about how he's like, you know, and I quote. And when he says that, he actually is supposedly like pulls his mustache up like it's a start quote. And then when he finishes, he brings his mustache back down like that's his end quote. Oh. <laughs> and I think that's a really funny little tidbit. <laughs> I don't think
1: I've ever even noticed that.
0: Well, it's because I don't think you're uh, the way that it's edited, and I don't think it's uh, it's it clear. Through, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, then we have the three the three gentlemen, the three kind gentlemen who are missing some things: Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, and Bert Lar uh, as Hunk Scarecrow, Hickory Tin Man, and Zeke Cowardly Lion. I just love these guys. Yeah. And
0: I mean, I don't know if you watched any footage of these guys outside of Wizard of Oz, um, but I was kind of blown away by some of the stuff these guys do. Like Ray Bolger is a dancing fool. He, it is nuts the stuff that that guy does. I mean, he's he's like a, you know a Fred Astaire sort. I mean, he's just yeah. his body is this lanky. You know, crazy thing that he just moves all over the place. It's amazing to watch him.
1: Yeah, and you get a sense of that, and particularly when we first meet him as he's finding his legs. You know, but uh, but uh, nothing like you get in some of his other performances. I think you're right.
0: It's terrific. There's, there was actually talk of him playing the Tin Man initially, and he kind of fought that because he's like. I can't, you know, for the stuff that I do. There's no way I can be trapped in a, a tin outfit this for the duration of the film. Yeah, and I think that's just completely
1: correct because he is perfect as a scarecrow. He was perfect. He was part of the the team, Sanford and Bolger, and he did uh, all sorts of Broadway shows and uh, uh, definitely a uh, old school song and dance man
0: and uh he uh interesting uh, tidbit but when he does his little math bit at the end it's actually incorrect so those brains ain't no good
1: <laughs> brains ain't nothing <laughs> who needs them jack haley you already mentioned uh, he replaced buddy epson uh after the dust problems haley also uh, developed an eye infection from the aluminum paste that they were using around his eyeballs which turned out to be poisonous well done
0: special things they learn <laughs> things they learn. Yeah. It has they, to learn it somewhere. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's like cavemen learning what they can and can't eat. <laughs> right. <You> know, it's <laughs> right. Just like that. <sighs> oh, but you know, I, I do like Jack Haley. I think he's great in this and, uh, he's, um, uh, I, I think that there's just something very kind of just sweet about him as, as Tin Man. He's never been my favorite of the three. Um, but I do enjoy Jack Haley in this role quite a bit. Well, who's your favorite? Scarecrow. Oh, between Scarecrow and Lion, yeah, I, I
1: fluctuate. I think so too. You know what it is? The Tin Man. He's too mature. Is he? Don't you get is the that, feeling? You think that's He's a... the mature. He's the mature one. Maybe it's just because he's so stiff. I think it's because he's tin. <laughs> <laughs> he's just not as huggable. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. That didn't work for me. It's
0: because when I was a child, I had a tin doll, and he always
1: <laughs> cut my
0: cut me open. <laughs>
1: uh, it, but uh, but you say uh, so. So I hear you say that you can. There there are remnants of Buddy Ebsen still in the show somewhere.
0: Yeah, Buddy Ebsen, um When they sang some of the the songs, and it was the three of them singing, "We're off to see the Wizard." Um, you can still hear Buddy Ebson. Um, because they, the way they sang it, all three of them were recorded at the same time. And so they couldn't replace, uh, Ebsen's singing and those particular moments with Haley's. So yeah. you can still, I think that's the one place you can still hear a remnant of Buddy Ebsen in the film.
1: All right. The thing I love about Bert Lahr, well, I love a lot about Bert Lahr, uh, in this film, but the thing I did not know that really creeps me out is that his costume, real lion pelt. Yep. That's the worst thing that that I've heard. That is the worst thing.
0: And it's, you know, these sets were hot. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. And just the fact that he's wearing this incredibly heavy, hot costume that he's trapped in. And it's like (laughs)
1: real lion skin. It's like, I don't know what they were thinking. Now that you know that, you're listening to this. Now that you know, real lion pelt, go ahead and watch the movie again and you will see it. And you will never have noticed it. But you'll see it right around the paws. You'll see the paws. You'll see everything. It is up the belly. Like, it is awful. It's awful. Yeah, he That's, is really great. He was a he. He was terrific. He was originally he dropped out of. Uh, according to the big IMDb, he dropped out of uh, high school or dropped out of school at fifteen and became a vaudeville actor.
0: Yeah, they're all kind of vaudeville, and, and you know they they actually for him um, pulled some kind of lines that he was uh, that he would say in his uh, vaudeville shows. Um, and he'd kind of put them in, they'd find ways to weave them into the script here. As long as it felt authentic to this world, they would find ways. Like there's that part where it starts snowing and he says, you know, like, uh, you know, what you know, peculiar weather we're having, yeah? Or whatever he says. And, and mm-hmm. that was something that I guess he would say in his vaudeville acts. So little things like that. And I love that they kind of did that.
1: You know, it is, uh, it's iconic vaudeville material to start talking about the weather. I can see why they would have wanted to pull that in. <laughs> it's a that. weird thing it is it is it.
0: and uh, you know later in his life he did uh, um start painting lion paintings that uh that I guess it was kind of one of those things that he would do and uh, you know I was poking around uh, the internet trying to see if I could find any I couldn't find any I'd love to see what his little lion paintings looked like but I'm sure they're I'm sure they're fun to see
1: yeah uh, did you watch
0: his, uh, his his potato chip commercials
1: <laughs> yes oh, which my.
0: which one's your favorite <laughs>
1: Yeah, the devil one, Pete. You got to describe it. This is not, we're on YouTube, but this is not a video,
0: Andy. No, I know. No, he he did a couple where, you know, he's a, you know, it's the nobody can eat just one. And the devil comes and offers a guy a potato chip. It's like, you know, nobody can eat just one, gives him a potato chip, and then he won't give him the other one. And, you know, basically, unless this guy goes to hell sort of thing. And, of course, (laughs) the guy grabs the chips and starts eating them because nobody can eat just one. (laughs) It's terrible, and then the other one is like the most non PC commercial. Oh, it's, it's oh my goodness! It's it's kind of a cowboys and Indians sort of mm-hmm. uh, sort of one, and I guess you can just imagine from there.
1: Well, you know, we're big on uh, racial stereotypes here in the next reel. Oh, yes. in our movies of nineteen thirty nine, Billy Burke is Glinda the Good Witch of the North.
0: Uh she's great. I don't have a lot to say about her, but. Um, there was what was the? I feel like there was one film that she had uh, been in that I was going to bring up, but I can't remember now. Father of the Bride. That's what it was. Yeah, she was in Father of the yeah. Bride. Yes, that she kind was. of surprised me. I was like, oh yeah,
1: good talk. Uh, Margaret Hamilton as uh, Almira Gulch and the Wicked Witch of the West.
0: I just uh, I think that she is just one of those people who just really. Uh, tapped into finding the way to play just a great iconic villain and I'm sure you know partnering with the with the right director and everything but you know it's funny listening to Margaret talk about um, talk about getting offered this part it's it's very funny because she's a very very funny lady and uh you know she had been in love with Wizard of Oz from the time she was a child first reading them from like the time she was four and when they called to offer the part um you know. <laughs> Her uh, agent who called her said, uh, well, uh, you know, and and she's like, oh, well, what part? And they're like, oh, it's the witch. And she's like, the witch? And her agent's like, well, what else? (laughs) (laughs) She's just like, but she's, you know, she's very, you know, very funny because she's like, well, I guess with this nose, what else are they going to offer me? So."
1: that's awesome Very that's really funny. funny because i think had we had we been uh watching movies a uh, contemporary of this film i think it would have been really entertaining to see her in that character i think that would have been one of those terrific moments uh of, of seeing an actor out of out of character uh, yeah in such a kind of dramatic way her right, makeup absolutely. was also uh incredibly toxic she swallowed some of the green and had to live on liquids for days her face was dyed green for weeks and weeks due to the Unusually high quantities of copper that they rubbed upon her skin, and it and,
0: and it uh, set on fire. Also, when she was um, <laughs> try, it was I believe when they were um, they had stage elevators, and when she um, appears and disappears in Munchkinland um, toward the uh, early part in uh, in Oz, um, when she when the stage drops out. From under her, the first time they did it, the stage dropped so fast that she she just plummeted down below, and uh, and really almost got hurt. And then so they tried it a second time, and when the stage went down, it didn't work right. And when the fireball went off. It caught her face on fire and it caught the copper on fire and the copper just kept burning. And, and so luckily, somebody was really smart and actually had to grab her and pull her off and wipe off all the makeup so that because they're like, you know, the copper copper is just going to keep burning and it'll just kind of keep burning into your skin. So that's, luckily, that's
1: an awful story. I know it's terrible. Just horrible.
0: Yeah, I, there's a, a lot of injuries. <laughs> This. In in early special effects, while people are still trying to sort things
1: out, yeah, uh, yeah. sometimes it didn't go so well. Yeah, good warning. How about uh, Clara Blandick? A brief performance by Clara Blandick as Aunt M. It's one of those,
0: uh, one of those characters, one of those, uh, people that I, I don't know elsewhere. Um, but she's just, she's a very busy woman. And it just seems to me like this is one of those things where it's just like kind of an iconic role that, that she was in that, um, I'll always think of her as Aunt M, even though she—I mean, geez, she started acting in 1911 uh, and acted all the way into the 50s. So, I mean, she's been around a lot. I think it's interesting that that she and Uncle Henry, yeah, Charlie, Charlie Grapewin, Grapewin um, were both um, characters that were left to be only, uh, only in the real world. They didn't have counterparts in. In Oz. And my, my interpretation of that is they needed somebody who could kind of represent home and represent that return that Dorothy was after. Because if they were kind of in Oz, I feel like Dorothy would go, Oh, well, it's kind of like Aunt Em and Uncle Henry are here. I'll right. just stay here by having them not here. I think that really helps.
1: Yeah. Cause Oz kicks butt. Like everything's yeah. in color.
0: Well, yeah, I know we fancy it's, shoes like, why go back? It's why so go much back fun if <laughs> you
1: have everybody here? Yeah, all your favorite people are animals and Tin Man and Scarecrow. Why not stick around? No, I totally agree with you. You've got to have something to want to go back to, and that completes the hero's journey, right? You have to be able to come back a changed person after you drink the elixir, you know, and so uh, I think it actually works really well. Yeah. Um, uh, Pat Walsh is Nico.
0: Yeah, I guess the winged monkey king. I mean, I don't have a lot to say about Pat Walsh other than I guess at the time, Pat Walsh was kind of popular for portraying animals animals
1: and uh what a weird little
0: thing to be known for
1: he's andy circus andy pat walsh is the andy circus of the 1930s he's the guy who plays animals andy circus is the guy who plays computer animals that's awesome right that's a great comparison i love it thank you sir and and actually what you don't know is is uh, toto was play, played by andy circus <laughs> <laughs> sorry I, I couldn't pull it off toto is played by terry uh, yeah, who's a girl. So this was actually, um, uh, actually, <laughs> the Danish girl's actually an homage to Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I'm just full of it.
0: <laughs> you are just, uh, yeah, this is, uh, Toto's the uh, the first uh, transgender character. The first
1: in, transgender in character, exactly. Episode. It was 1939. So it's unfortunate they got that little bit of history wrong. Terry the Dog uh, played Toto. It was in 18 other films, including our I least favorite film the women <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah right at the beginning of the women there were those dogs yeah. and uh, yeah one of them is uh, is toto
1: poor aka terry <laughs> poor terry broke her foot in this film just like Harrison ford did in star wars another great parallel a monkey stepped on her yeah. i know it was a winky a one winky. of the winkies yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, and and uh, Terry the dog made uh, more than 500 pounds a week, which was actually more than the uh, than the Munchkins made. They were they were paid 500 pounds a week was tops for the top Munchkins. So Terry the dog pulled in bank. Why do you why why are you telling us that in pounds? I'm curious. I don't I don't actually know that why I'm putting in pounds. I should. What is that in? <laughs> You know, I research the research that I did was in uh, it was a resource written by an Englishman. And so uh, for so what is 500 pounds uh, pounds in dollars? What is that? That would be seven hundred and twenty three fifty five, seven twenty three fifty five in a week. Wow. For Terry, the dog. That's pretty good. I, that is funny. I didn't even make a connection that I was speaking in pounds. This is of course this is not a this is uh that's ridiculous that I would so, do that. So
0: if it was seven hundred twenty five, that's about twelve thousand a week in today's dollars. Wow. Just, just
1: for just so you have a sense. Wow <laughs> Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That is crazy. Uh all right. So uh who else do we need to talk about before we get to the munchkins? I was only. Gonna bring I love up, the munchkins. I do too, man. I, I
0: was only going to bring up Adriana Caselotti, um, who you, t- who really isn't in the film, but it's it's so strange that she actually pops up in here because a, a big reason that this film got made was because of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. When that film was such a success, and people said, "Hey, you know, this film can actually work. You can tell a, a story that kind of is enjoyed by adults and kids." Um, That kind of pushed people to make this movie. And Adriana Castellotti, of course, is the voice of Snow White in that film. And here, she pops up as that mystery voice that sings when the Tin Man is singing his song about If I Only Had a Heart. And you hear, Wherefore art you, Romeo? Or wherefore art thou, Romeo? And that is her.
1: That's really funny. What a small part. I know. It's just such a strange little moment to kind of throw in there. Okay, enough about music. Let's talk about The Munchkins. Let's do it. Oh my. Goodness, the stories out of the munchkin land. Okay. So the munchkins, you know, do you know about the singer midgets, Andy? Well, I know that they're credited as the singer midgets. So the singer midgets. The Singer midgets are uh, they were actually a, a group of it started with 20 little people managed by Leo Singer. They could not sing that it was not actually their job, but they toured as this vaudeville act between the late 1910s, 1915 or so, and the mid 1940s. They also had a, a midget or three midget elephants that they they called it and 20 ponies. That were part of this show, the Lilliputstad, the singer midgets. That's how they traveled around. And as it happened, uh, they, it was Leo Singer who was uh, uh, brought in to coordinate and to find, to recruit the, uh, the Munchkins. So he ends up finding a hundred and more than a hundred and twenty little people to uh, join the cast, and they put them all in the Culver Hotel. Uh, and I'm sure they paid in pounds and that maybe that's where I, I got this. Uh, there you go. but the stories that come out of the, who, I, I, who knows? I, I, it, but it turns out that they apparently turned the Culver City Hotel into a crazed, uh, a drunken dwarf love-in, they call it. Unholy, uh, this is a quote, an unholy assembly of pimps, hookers, and gamblers. Uh, Mervyn Leroy recalled, they had orgies in the hotel and we had to have police on every floor. Uh, uh, though he says later, to make a picture like The Wizard of Oz, everybody had to be a, a little drunk with imagination. I'm sure that's what the Munchkins were thinking. Judy Garland apparently went on a date with one, uh, by the, but her mom had to go because she was uh, only 17 at the time. Uh, and then the one that she went on a date with says, fair enough, two broads for the price of one. Oh. My goodness.
0: I've heard that there's a lot of stories, and I've heard a lot of them are just kind of rumors and myth, and it's kind of turned into this whole thing. I know. Um, but
1: but better that, Andy. Can you imagine it?
0: Oh, yes. I, I think it's really, it's very interesting. And, I mean, they made that movie Under the Rainbow kind of uh, loosely take it, uh, taken from that, all those stories.
1: And I I've never seen that, that
0: movie. I haven't seen it. Um. IMDB says a visiting dignitary, a CIA agent, a Nazi spy, Japanese tourist, an assassin, and a group of midget actors from *The Wizard of Oz* all check into an elite Los Angeles hotel called *Under the Rainbow*.
1: That's funny because it really sounds like a, the assassin. Yes, CIA uh, agent. Clearly, the Tin Man. You saw going? It? You know, yeah. yeah, that was Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher in that one. Yeah. Anyhow, so I find those rumors hysterical. I can totally see it. If I were one of the singer midgets, I would have probably gone down that road myself. you never know what you're driven to but the this this these characters were hysterically uh, awesome they they did such justice to uh, oz and and to you know when her arrival in oz i think is made so special because so many of these uh, of of these characters were on set at the time i think it was just wonderful
0: well it's a great way to really define a new world right she lands in munchkinland and she's surrounded by little people i yeah. mean it really spells uh or weaves a really magical spell for a child I mean uh, you first, you know she walks out the door and everything is color and then second, everybody around her they're all grown-ups but they're all uh they're all short it's it's pretty it's a very interesting way to kind of uh, kick off this trip Jerry marin who is the lollipop guild munchkin, the one in the green shirt um he is uh the last surviving munchkin. And, um, yeah, he, I think he became the last surviving member um, when Ruth Duccini passed away on January 16th, 2014. So, um, uh, yeah, he's still out there kicking. I think he recently has had a spell of some illnesses. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, he's been around for a long time. Hopefully he'll hold out a little longer. But, I mean, he, he was born in 1920. He's 96. So
1: I wonder if we can get him on the show.
0: I know we should try. We should try and (laughs) get Jerry Marin on the
1: show. That would be great. Interesting. Yeah. Um,
0: Margaret Pellegrini was a sleepyhead uh, and flowerpot munchkin. Um, She actually lived here in Phoenix. And my wife at the time um, would, you know, she would notarize stuff. And actually, uh, Margaret Pellegrini came in and needed something notarized. So my wife got to meet her when she popped in to get some papers done. She's still your wife. Right. Uh, she is still my wife.
1: Yes. <laughs> you said my wife at the time as if your wife now is different.
0: Oh, no, yes.
1: No, my wife <laughs> is still the same. It shoots Margaret, and wheeze, Andy. It's all about the commas. I, you're
0: right. I know. And it was the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Margaret Pellegrini passed away in 2013 here in Arizona.
1: Oh, uh, sad.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep.
1: yep. Uh, the music is obviously a big part of this show.
0: Yeah, like I mentioned before, Arthur Freed kind of, uh, put this team together, pulled, uh, pulled these guys from Broadway, I believe, uh, Harburg and Allen. And at the time, it was kind of rare still for musicals to have songs that actually carried the story. And if you look at anything like some of these, uh, uh, movies, uh, um, uh, I'm blanking on like, you know, what was the one they would, they'd always have the year, like Broadway Melody of 1929, mm-hmm. movies like that. It was really, they'd they'd have these songs that just kind of popped in, and it was almost like watching a show, and and, and it really called them showstoppers because they'd stop the show and you'd have this big musical number. Yeah, I mean, like like Singing
1: in the Rain, like it was later, but uh, but it's that kind of a vibe.
0: Yeah, right, where it doesn't really... They were not part of the plot. Right, exactly. Um, And here you get these songs that actually kind of, tell part of the story and i think that was uh real rare and i think people really connected with it um and of course you know the movie kicks off with over the rainbow which was voted the number one song of the century which i i, I think is a, a fair assessment i think it's a pretty solid song i i'm assuming that's like a, a film song it's not like competing against the stones or the beatles or things yeah. like that
1: i would i would hope not that seems, seems a little bit subjective the, Right, right. I, yeah, I think it's a it's number like who, one song. Who is it that voted this number one song? Like, who is voting? I didn't vote. It was Jerry Maron, actually. That was it? <laughs> He's the only one who got to vote. Yeah, yeah he picked.
0: <laughs> He's the last Munchkin, he gets to
1: pick. He gets to pick. <laughs> That's what they said in 1939. <laughs> the last Munchkin gets to pick. They told me I would have this honor.
0: But yeah, the song actually almost was cut, which I think is crazy, because it is such a core song for this film. And it's really, it's just in our zeitgeist, the whole concept of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Um uh, But at the time, MGM really felt, you know, we can't have one of our stars singing a song in a barnyard. And they just felt it was so inappropriate that they just really almost just cut it out right. They just didn't think it was going to work. And, uh, luckily, uh, Wiser has prevailed. <laughs> they kept it in. <laughs> Truly. And yeah, and it really did become uh, Judy Garland's signature song. She would sing it at every show that she would do. It was always the, the one that, um, was
1: connected to her. As we were watching this, my daughter says, "Because you know, there's a sequence where she's somewhere over there, and she leans back against a hay bale. Do you know what I'm talking about?" Uh huh. Yeah. My daughter says, "Gotta be creepy if like two hands came out of the hay bale and grabbed her face and pulled her into it." I thought, "God, she's so my daughter." That is.
2: <laughs> that is so, so, funny. so grim. <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Yeah.
1: So think about that next time you watch the movie. I will. Yeah, I will. Let's. Uh best line uh, best line in any song in the film, certainly, but I could show my prowess, be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had nerve. Best most egregious example of uh, of rhyme uh that I think I've I have yet heard to this day.
0: I love the wordplay that these guys do. I mean yeah. that sort of stuff. I mean it's just it's that's just absurd vaudeville right fun. there. That is oh, vaudeville, yeah. yeah. And it's perfect coming out of Burt Lahr because he just gives it that vibe. And that, and as much as I really, the song still kind of grates on my nerves is the If I Were King of the Forest song. Yeah, But at the same time, it's just so funny because it is so over the top. But, you know, the way he has that just completely fake vibrato, the forest, whatever he's doing there, I don't even know how he does that. But yeah, I mean, I do love the wordplay. Like, you know, we hear he is a whiz of a whiz if ever a whiz there was. Mm-hmm. If ever, oh, ever a whiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one because, I mean, yeah. it's just, I, I, you know, I don't know. I just, it's such crazy, uh, and simple and almost childlike wordplay. But it just, uh, I don't know, it's like these songs are ingrained in your that's brain. Right.
1: It's ticklish. It's like mentally ticklish. That's why you like it so much, you know? I mean, that's certainly why we connect with it as kids and adults. It's fantastic. It's fun to say. Mentally ticklish. Yes.
0: I love that. That's a thing. <laughs> it's it's my favorite thing now. <laughs> I need more mentally ticklish projects yes, in my life. Yes, you need to be tickled. <laughs> mentally.
2: <laughs> what well, else? Awesome
0: uh Herbert Stothart's score. This is an interesting one because this was that uh, that period in time where there wasn't really a film score so to speak. A score was really pulling a lot of different types of music. And here you can hear The Happy Farmer, you can hear Night on Bald Mountain. That's kind of the way the the direction that people were going at the time and It's very strange. The weirdest thing for me is that I I think when it comes time to the Oscars, you know, he wins an Oscar for best original score. And I don't get that because there was also that score. What was the one we were talking about uh, last time for, was it for Stagecoach, where it was like best, I can't remember, but it just, it, it struck me as kind of strange that that he would get best original score when it seems like it wasn't really original, because he's kind of pulling all these other things
1: out, but whatever. Right, right. Uh, his credits are fantastic, because, you know, obviously his his music is in just a lot of stuff. He died in 1949, but uh, his he is credited up until, you know, 2012 with Wreck-It Ralph, even, um, because his songs are are out there and and it's funny when you listen to the to some of his music donkey serenade you listen to i want to be loved by you i mean these are things that uh that he um he is responsible for that we're still seeing we're still hearing i think that's that's fantastic
0: well and i mean geez that holds true for uh for the other guys too for yeah. uh, harold arlen and yip Har- Harburg, you look at their credits uh for the stuff that they did and it's like geez you know it's only a paper moon. Oh, now with yeah, with love, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Lydia, the tattooed lady. Um, I mean, just it's their their work is just kind of core to that uh, that type of song that is just kind of so ingrained, absolutely uh, in uh, in our world.
1: Uh, you, I, I know you want to talk about Adrian.
0: It's, you know, Adrian uh, did the costumes for the women. We already talked about that and mentioned it here. Um, also did the costumes here. And I gotta say, these, uh, there's something really brilliant about the color choices and doing just such strong. Technicolor costumes that work so well in this land and you go just see there the, the variations of the Munchkin costumes and and what they did with the lion scarecrow and Tin Man and the wizard and everybody in Emerald City and the Wicked Witch and just everybody their costumes are just done so well it just it really uh, is just you know an incredible incredible job um, and of course there's the great Ruby slippers that uh, that he did that have become so famous and uh you know there's actually a a documentary out right i uh, think it they had just played at south by southwest called the slippers that is really all about the unbelievable world of the ruby slippers and how i think there were where was it six? I think there were six pairs of ruby slippers that were made, uh, for the film that they would wear, that she would wear at different times. And this documentary is really, uh, I'll just read this blurb from IMDb. The slippers pulls back the wizard's curtain on the unbelievable story and cultural impact of Dorothy's ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. Through firsthand accounts and archival interviews, the slippers will detail the life of the ruby slippers after their sale at the famed 1970 MGM auction discovered by costumer Kent Warner. It is unclear how many pairs were found and how many pairs exist. That mystery has only helped to propel the shoes to the forefront of the Hollywood memorabilia market. They have been bought, stolen, and coveted by many. They are considered the most important piece of Hollywood memorabilia and the catalyst for the creation of Hollywood memorabilia collecting. It's just crazy. I mean, yeah. these things are just a, a core to, uh, you know, that. Type of iconic thing that uh, that people see as as memorabilia. Yeah. I mean, you think of, ho- of of like memorabilia from Hollywood, and ruby slippers just kind of pops in. Yeah, at it, the yeah. top. Have you ever seen a pair of the ruby slippers? No, have you? I I feel like I I did. There was a a tour that came through the museum here of like great Hollywood costumes and stuff, and I feel like there were slippers there, and that could just be my brain playing tricks on me because I feel like I should have seen them. <laughs>
1: But I, I, you know, I don't know. I feel like it (laughs) It feels like it should have been appropriate. Therefore, it was. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Production uh, coming in once again, the heavyweight with 1057 credits, Cedric Gibbons. Ah, yes. Production (laughs) design. (laughs) What was the story about him again? for those who uh, didn't hear our uh, last film.
0: Yeah, he was he had a contract with MGM where he would uh, get a credit on every film that uh, that rolled through whether he worked on it or not. So <laughs> that's why he's got 1500 some credits listed. But really he only worked on about 150 or so.
1: And and this do we do we know if this was one of them?
0: This I believe was one. He was nominated for an Oscar for this and I did hear his name brought up a number of times in special features and All stuff. Right. So
1: All right. Well, then he deserves a lot of credit. Yes. This was beautiful. Cedric Gibbons with William Horning. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Malcolm Brown and Jack
0: Martin Smith, I believe, um, spent some time in here. You know, I love the sets. I, again, just like Adrian and what he brought, uh, yo, Adrian, uh, I think that Cedric brought a lot here and uh, beautiful sets, beautiful colors. I love just the look of it. They did a great job here blending uh, real sets and uh, matte paintings. And painted walls, like when Dorothy is leaving Munchkinland, and she's uh, dancing along uh, along the Yellow Brick Road, and she's she's really dancing up to a wall. And if you look, you can kind of tell that you know the there's a a, a, a point on the Yellow Brick Road where it suddenly doesn't it's not the 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 actual road anymore but it's a painting going up the wall mm-hmm. um but it, it i think they do a really good job and I, I i there's something really effective about this type of uh cinema work that um i really enjoy still
1: I do, too. I think it's really touching. And you look at some of the big uh, uh, some of the big works of William Horning. I mean, this is the guy behind North by Northwest and Ben Hur and and Gigi and Cat on a Hot 10 Roof. And I mean, he's it's I've seen many more of of Horning's films. Uh, Well certainly than cedric's uh but uh, uh but many more of them that that strike me as sort of iconically expert in this kind of uh, this kind of work and really displaying this world in a the, the world of of these sets in in a way that is uh, sort of magically impossibly perfect yeah uh, the, the emerald palace interior largest set at the time
0: yeah, this, uh, I mean, it was a huge set that they built for the inside of, uh, of Emerald City. It's a pretty magnificent set. I mean, this is when they have the horse of a different color rolling them through in the carriage. They have them all getting, uh, fixed and stuffed and cleaned and all that sort of stuff. All that's happening. You know, it's, that's a, a pretty impressive set. And I mean, you can almost kind of tell that it's just a, a big set that, cause, you know, they didn't, it's green. <laughs> they just kind of made yeah. it all green,
1: <laughs> but, uh, I still think it works nicely. The horses were covered in flavored jelly powder. Right. Apparently, all of the all of the horse sequences had to be filmed really, really fast because they kept licking it off of each other. That would have been <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's a head slapper! Why did we not think of that?
0: That is so funny. Uh, anyhow, they so. should have done the, the the Tin Man in
1: in the, exactly in the silver, flavored you know, jelly powder. Ah. <laughs> oh and the witch peter and line <laughs> oh man they should have invited us on the set
0: see we got to all figure it out uh,
1: uh why why was there a, the and the birds bugged me do they bug you why is there a toucan in oz there's no toucans in oz <laughs> there's no toucan in oz there's no toucans in oz
0: <laughs> uh, and there's a it looks like a secretary bird walking around uh the little uh uh the tin woodman's uh well the pre-tin right. woodman's back when he was just a woodman uh of his house there's like a secretary bird kind of poking around back there yeah they um, were trying to find a way to make these sets look a little more um feel more like they were actually outside so they borrowed a bunch of birds from the uh i from, think from the la zoo and just kind of had them walking around on the set to give it <laughs> a feel but it's interesting because this film looked so bad for so many years because people were watching old copies and and just the TV versions and everything that it's these birds that actually uh, are what people saw hanging or they they saw in the tree. And that's what actually started the rumor of that, you know, there was this munchkin who had hung himself in, on the set. And if you're watching, you can see the body kind of hanging in the tree. And kind of you know, kind of blowing in the wind sort of thing. And it was actually one of these birds, and you never really could tell because the copies looked so bad until they did this amazing restoration, um, which in the is last beautiful. decade or so. Oh, it's just an yeah. unreal restoration, it really is. But um, and now it's like so clear that these are just some random <laughs> birds underground <laughs> on set. It's just so funny. Uh, I'm waiting for the uh, cleaned up restored version of uh three men and a baby. To see <laughs> what was behind the curtain. What's there. behind
1: the curtain? Um uh, this thing was edited by Blanche Sewell. What do we have to thank her for?
0: You know, just a lot of, uh, a lot of great stuff. I, I don't know. I'm curious about the story of Blanche Sewell and how much at the time editors, um, you know, what control they had over storytelling or were they really just kind of button pushers? I'm not quite sure of the story of Blanche, but I know that, you know, she was involved in the almost cutting over the rainbow or keeping it. And I'm not sure which side she fell on, on that. But also, um, there was this, uh, this musical number that was put in at a point called the jitterbug and you may recall a line that the witch says when uh, the monkeys are getting ready to head out to go catch uh, the dorothy and her friends and the witch says um don't worry i've sent a little insect ahead to help slow them down or something like that and yeah. that's what she's talking about is this little jitterbug that i don't know i guess the whole point of it, it, was, it was it would bite you and then it would make you dance um, it would make you dance did you watch the Jitterbug? Uh, the the scene? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I read about it. It's uh, it's pretty terrible. It's um, I I don't know. It's the Jitterbug, and it's just the silly scene that uh, it just didn't work at all. It was it was shot from uh, kind of a home movie camera, so you don't even see like how yeah. it really was supposed to look. But I, uh, you know, the musical number I think was weak. I think I'd like to say that that's part of the reason why they cut it. But what I heard they cut it because they felt the jitterbug tied too closely to the modern dance, the jitterbug. And they felt that it would date the film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, not, that was a good choice.
0: I agree. Good call. Cinematography good by
1: Harold Rawson.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We like we like him. Sure. We does. Do. He does. Uh, he does good stuff here. Um, I, I think there's some great camera moves. I You know. There's a lot of, uh, amazing Technicolor work. And considering that the Technicolor cameras were like 500 pounds or something nutty like that. I mean, this film, when, when she lands in Munchkinland, it's, there's this amazing, uh, crane shot that starts when she walks out of the house. And there's, there's a cutaway to her reaction shot, but then it goes back to this shot as she kind of walks out of the house into the, into the, the streets of Munchkinland. And the camera pulls, it just kind of goes up and floats, uh, through the trees over the brook and, and kind of comes over to the yellow brick road area. And kind of turns back to Dorothy. And this is an amazing, beautiful move that just kind of gives us this uh, sense of this world that we're in. Because you don't get shots like that in Kansas. And it's just a great way to kick this part of the film off.
1: It's like the equivalent of of an IMAX camera, right? I mean, today, right? Those cameras were gigantic.
0: Uh, Yeah, they were just huge. They were just... Enormous, enormous beasts to trundle around with. I mean, it's it was a three-strip um, Technicolor. It yeah. had three giant three reels. reels filming at the same time. Right. Oi. I can't even
1: imagine. Well, you shot your first film on one, right? Oh yeah, that's all I use. <laughs>
2: um,
1: can we talk just a little bit about uh, the the effects? Uh yes. Yes, especially the tornado. I, you know,
0: I. I mean, all the effects are impressive, but every time I watch the tornado, I'm really just kind of blown away by how awesome it still looks.
1: Yes. How did that? I, I mean, I, so technically, uh, what I understand, and I I tried to find something on this. Did you watch any video? Did they have any behind the scenes of how they did that? They did. They-
0: they talk about how they did that. The behind the scenes that they have is just kind of showing the actual like raw footage of it, and so it actually starts off just not moving at all, mm-hmm. and goes to a point where it's moving and spinning and kind
1: of. That's the story. Things. That's what I saw, and what I understand is they had a wire frame and they wrapped it with pantyhose, and then they they put it underneath a long set that was large in the distance, and they tied the bottom of it of the tour of the funnel cloud to a car. That they then drove back and forth on on a line just uh, across the set, and so that's what made it kind of move and bend uh, as it was as they had it spinning from the top. I have a hard time picturing how that works, and I haven't actually seen it, but apparently they did that all on a giant soundstage.
0: Yeah, I I had a hard time figuring it out too because the way they were talking about it when I was listening to them was there's something about how it was. Um, it was like in, I don't know, the bottom of it was in something that when it would go, it would spit up all the dust and everything to make it look like the stuff on the ground. And I, I don't know. i All I know is I'm just blown away by that stinking thing every yeah. time I see it. And not just the tornado, but really, I mean, everything involving the tornado, that scene, like just what the, the – as she's running up to the house and, and you see the tornado in the background and she opens the door and the door just flies off into the air. Yes. It's, you know, it's just like great stuff like that that just works so well to give you this real sense of this, this danger that she's in. Yeah. Crazy.
1: Crazy, and yeah. then it goes into a screened, um, projected kind of as our house is flying. We get projections of funny things kind of flying by the house, but and and you know, we kind of figured that out. But the the stuff that's really noteworthy is figuring out how they do that. How they do that tornado? How they do some of those movement effects at that that point? I think was really great. Uh, Glinda, um, you know, Glinda in her bubble, uh, I think is a is a cool example of that. Just using sort of double exposure and and um, you know, the witch melting through the floor, putting a giant hat on her so it looks like her head is shrinking. Uh, I, I think that ends up. <laughs> <laughs> ends up being really cool. Uh, what were some of your favorites? Well,
0: you mentioned Glinda's bubble. I, I think that what's so interesting about that is they, um, in order to make it look like that bubble is kind of coming uh, down and landing, they actually um, basically moved the camera to this bubble on set that they just were holding still, and they would they had this track so that they could move it the way that they wanted to um, have it go when when she was arriving. And I think that's such an interesting way to do that where, mm-hmm. you know, you have to kind of pre-plan exactly how you want the bubble to go so you can kind of plan your camera move and then, of course, do a double exposure so that it actually ends up in the right spot. I, I don't know. It just kind of boggles the mind a bit, just kind of some of the the planning that Buddy Gillespie and his team were uh, putting together with these things and the skywriting also the, when the wicked witch oh, is writing a yeah. uh, surrender, Dorothy in the sky, that's all done with like a little tiny ink thing in, in liquid. And, and they would kind of just write, they would stick the tip of this thing in liquid and just kind of write the words. And it would, I don't know what sort of liquid it was that would kind of hold it in place, but it would kind of keep the words there. Just really fascinating. I love that, you know, I mean, and and effects, the thing about effects is they're always trying things new. Even today, they're always trying to go, what can we do to kind of, um, you know, push the boundaries a little bit and do something new that people haven't seen?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Back then, I love that they're doing that also. I mean, even just things like the footlock that they have for Tin Man when he's dancing and he does that lean where he's kind of going left and then goes right. I mean, I don't know if the footlock was something that they had been doing a lot uh, before this, but I, you know, I don't know. I... I they're still doing it in things recently. Even you know the thing that pops into my head when I see that is is Michael Jackson's uh, moonwalk. Yes. it moonwalker.
1: <laughs> yeah, moonwalker. That's right. Yeah,
0: in uh, in Smooth Criminal when he does that lean, and it's just yeah.
1: uh, it's a cool move, and it's just you know it's something that's been around forever. Pretty cool stuff. So th- we've already talked a little bit about the restoration uh which was is beautiful especially since we're coming off of stagecoach last week where the restoration is just generally terrible. This is one where it's just
0: you know I mean this has is really I mean it's it's the film that's been seen by more people than any other film is from what i've read like over a billion people this film is clearly well loved and mgm and all the different people who have kind of had control over it have done a really good job of keeping tabs on as many elements as they could and when they did the restoration with all the three strip technicolor i mean they were really able to figure out um interestingly you know as they go through the different strips the the three different colors if there's something that's amiss in one of them, they can pretty clearly determine, hey, that's obviously dirt. It's not something that's in the others. And they mm-hmm. were able to find a better way to map what should come out and what shouldn't. And, uh, yeah, I mean, boy, it looks like it was just shot yesterday. This film is just stunning to look at.
1: It is beautiful. It's it, it's impossible to believe, really, that it, it's it been, you know, 80 years almost. Yeah, Crazy. is you know, yes. Yeah. Uh, How to it do in terms of awards? Fairly well, I gather. Uh,
0: fairly well. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture. Of course, it did lose to Gone with the Wind, um directed by Victor Fleming also. So, I mean, no matter what, he ended up having a good He came year. off well. Yeah, he, um, did not get nominated for best director for this film, um, but, uh, he did win for Gone with the Wind. Uh, this film, like I said, did win best original score for Herbert Stothart. Uh, again, why original score? I don't quite know, but that's what he won for. Uh, best song over the rainbow by, uh, Harburg and Arlen, uh, which I think is, uh, pretty fair thing to say um judy garland got a special academy award it was the academy juvenile award for best performance by a juvenile um she got it for this and uh, babes in arms which she did this year also she was busy i mean she did like seven films in two years right around now i mean you know man i don't know how they oh well i Crazy. do sadly know how they kept yeah.
1: these kids well, working they were so all hard. high
0: yeah um, it was nominated for best art direction, Cedric Gibbons and uh, William Horning. It did lose to *Gone with the Wind*. Best cinematography, best color cinematography—I should specify—by Harold Rosson. Uh, this also lost to *Gone with the Wind*. Honestly, watching these two films, I think I would go with this over *Gone with the Wind*. Now,
1: well, especially now. I mean, yeah. Gone with the Wind, just as much as *Gone with the Wind* is a beautiful picture, but we have so many pro- more problems with it that uh, than. But even just, even just cinematography,
0: I, I, think that this, the, the transition from, from kind of that sepia tone to black and white to the color. I mean, this color in this film is just so vibrant and it just speaks so strongly to, uh, just kind of imagination. I, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot to that. Yeah. Um, best special effects. It was nominated for that. Um, uh, Arnold, uh, Arnold, Buddy Gillespie, and uh, Douglas Shearer. That last of the rains came, and I don't know anything about that movie. I'm gonna try to see if I can watch it before our series ends, so I can say speak something uh, to that. I'm curious because um, honestly, the special effects in this, uh, to me, stand out as what should have won.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't seen or heard of the rains game either. I, that's one I don't know anything about. Yeah. Um uh, a lot of people uh, talk about this film as uh, something more than just a kids film is it there's, is it a political film to you
0: You know it's not uh, you know I think there's so many things I mean there was a thing that came out in the 60s I think some political um reading into this film about different uh, about how the the ruby slippers uh or actually I, I you know it's just, just like was it the yellow brick road represented like the gold standard at the time and I don't know, all sorts of nonsensical sorts of things. There was religious readings into the film. Um, religious groups certainly had problems with this film. There were feminist views of the film. There was, you know, just, you know, drug readings of this film. There's so many ways you could read this film. And I, I think that a good film, I think, um, can end up having a lot of those, but still can stand strong uh, beyond all of that. I don't think any of that stuff really holds much
1: credence. I thought we were supposed to watch this, but turn the volume down and listen to the wall. And that would be that would be the quintessential experience for the Wizard of Oz. Have you ever tried that? No, of course not.
0: I actually I did try a little <laughs> bit of that. You can actually find it on Vimeo. We'll post the like uh, yeah. Dark Side of the Rainbow. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I of course they all just completely deny. It. I think I think one of them. I don't know if it's Roger Waters or one of them still kind of says, "Oh, oh yeah, yeah." But I think all the rest of like, it is just nonsense.
1: <laughs> well, that leads us into our, our <laughs> remakes and other takes segment. Uh, how did this? Uh, ha, had what? There are a number of spinoffs. We've talked about one of them, uh, the most recent um, Oz the Great and Powerful on this show on a film board some time ago. Didn't hold up very well. No, no, uh, I didn't like that at all. No, not 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 really at all. Uh, but there were yeah. still some other good uh, other versions of it.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. L. Frank Baum actually started making versions of this. I mean, he ended up moving to Hollywood before Hollywood kind of became a thing. And uh, in the silent era, he actually uh, tried his hand at making some adaptations of his books to the screen. And, you know, it was one of those weird things where people wanted to go watch things at the movie theater where they didn't feel they had to bring the kids. They, they wanted to be able to feel like it was for grownups. And so his stuff didn't ever... Uh, find an audience and it wasn't until really sleep, uh snow white and seven dwarfs that kind of uh you know kind of uh, burst that uh, that uh, uh yeah. wa- broke through that dam i don't know what m- metaphor i'm going for here but uh you know that that helped his stories find uh, a cinematic audience finally, but yeah, I mean, geez, the Whiz—that was a uh, you know stage version and a movie version, and then what was it recently? One of those um, live yeah. broadcast events, Return to Oz. Disney tried their hand at that. There was an animated Legends of Oz. The Muppets have done versions. There have been comic ver- book versions. There was a, a comic book that I loved as a kid called um, it was Captain Carrot, <laughs> which is <laughs> very silly comic book uh, superhero but uh, Captain Carrot and the amazing Zoo crew and they went and fought the Oz Wonderland War which was kind of a fun
1: little thing but it's um, uh but don't forget all end. the video games there's a ton of video games back from the Nintendo Nintendo DS Super, D- Super Nintendo you can get uh, you can get the Oz games there's of course there's a uh, you can go to Oz in the latest um, uh, Lego yeah Lego uh, Dimensions LEGO I was Dimensions.
0: just playing that level with my son earlier today were you really Yes, I was. Fantastic. Yeah,
1: uh, beyond
0: the Yellowbrick Road. Yeah, there's a lot of it. And then, of course, uh, have you looked at all at that wackadoodle alphabetical version of it? Oh, it uh, gives me uh, seizures. I don't know what it is about that, but it mesmerizes me. And I don't necessarily watch it, but I can like turn it on and well, des- just have it have des- it play while I go do other things. <laughs> Describe what it is. I, some, some loon decided, Hey, you know, it'd be really interesting. What if I took the Wizard of Oz and I re-edited it, um, word by word and put the whole thing in alphabetical order? And, and you start with <laughs> the credits and all the credits are in alphabetical order for each page. And then as you go along, Matt Busey is the guy's name. He, you can see it on his Vimeo page. We'll put a link, um, up there. But, um, yeah, it starts with the first, uh, word, A. And it goes all the way through the alphabet, uh to I don't even know what the last word is, I didn't look, but um it, it just goes through the whole thing. And it's just it's so weird and but it's kind of mesmerizing and it's funny how certain things all of a sudden hit. And I you know, the one that always sticks in my mind is when they're saying but and they go but 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 <laughs> but and then it ends
1: with but but buttons <laughs> I don't know. For me it's I I I all the screaming. Uh, right! Oh, no. i i i i i
0: <laughs> oh it's funny it is funny
1: it is it is actually really funny and i'm i'm surprised how well it 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 does kind of work alphabetically yeah it's it's weird uh how about uh, oz as a gay icon yeah,
0: you know, this uh this film has always kind of uh, stood out as a as a gay icon for uh for the gay community. I think um, you know, John Waters uh, was interviewed about it. And I, you know, he talks about how it's just, you know, it's this magical land, it's this place where where, uh, you know, these people, you know, you see, you know, the three farmhands and and uh, then in Oz is where they're able to kind of uh, open up and really be themselves. And I think there's a lot of ways that uh the gay community started seeing this film. And aside for the fact that the gay community looks at Judy Garland as quite an icon. Mm-hmm. And I think just all these things kind of have kind of come together to create this this sense about this movie that just, uh, I think that uh, it's just something that they can really hold
1: close. Uh, well, it's a, it is, is a terrific film. We did enjoy it, but how did it do at the box office?
0: You know, interestingly, this film did not do that well when it opened. It actually lost money. And I think that's really interesting uh, to, uh, to note that it just wasn't something that, uh, that, that, I mean, it did well enough, but it, it, because of the amount of money they spent on Princeton advertising, it ended up, it ended up losing out. And of course, thank you, uh, Eddie Mannix, for bringing all that to light. Uh, I love all this uh, factual information that people pull from his ledger for budgets for all this sort of stuff. Right, right. Now, that being said, this film ended up being one of those films that had a new life. Uh, I think in 1949, it was re released. And, uh, then it kind of subsequently ended up having a number of re-releases and people kept going to this movie and kept going and kept going and kept going. This, this movie just had a life beyond uh anything that people kind of expected and this film was one of those uh first films that ended up on tv and it got broadcast on tv every single year i mean that's where i first saw it was i don't know i can't remember if it was around christmas or thanksgiving but every year it was always on tv and that was kind of one of those core things it was like the wizard of oz and the sound of music and rudolph the red-nosed reindeer were Absolutely. Like the three things that were core that we had to watch every year and uh, yeah, and so this film ended up making a lot of money. This film at the time cost uh two point seven almost two point eight million dollars to make that's about forty forty six and a half million in today's dollars. It ended up over time uh making about thirty three point seven million, which is about five hundred sixty five million in adjusted dollars um plus some international money that it brought in. so all told this film ended up making. Over time, about an adjusted five million adjusted profit per finished minute, mm. that puts it at number eleven on our list. So amazing yeah. for a film that lost money when it was initially released. Uh, over time, it's ended up creeping its way up to become one of the most popular. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: Who knew? Did Eddie we talk, knew? Did we talk about the 1925 and the 1933 Wizard of Oz in our sequels discussion?
0: Well, I did mention that uh that uh, bomb had done some previous versions um I don't know if he was involved in those particular ones, but you know people were trying to find a way to tell this story. It's just it took a long time, and I, like I said, I think it really was finding the right way through Snow White to uh, yeah. approach it.
1: I just gave it i you know it was only into it was only when I looked at them in order that 1925 1933 that's that's not very far apart from 1939 like that's a that's a timeline that that you can see people throwing that particular spaghetti at that particular wall over time to see if they can make it work and i'm it's sort of surprising in that light that they keep trying they kept trying to get through over that hump even in 1939 that they hadn't given up on it it's like fantastic Four. yeah
0: (laughs) if we keep throwing money at it one of these days we'll get it right (laughs) we just haven't come to the 1939
1: version yet of the fantastic four but (laughs) But it's coming pete (laughs) that's exactly it's the spider-man conundrum too right it's this whole idea of sunk cost bias you know we've spent so much money trying to make it right how could we possibly stop spending money
0: yes yeah right
1: (laughs) you know what i got the other day pete Uh, season 13 is a fun one looking at various awards categories over the decades from best picture nominees to cinematography adapted screenplays to visual
0: effects and a good number of movies we're discussing started out as books or plays that you can read now
1: on Audible. 1940 Academy Awards Best Picture nominees of Mice and Men and Weathering Heights.
0: Oh, what a great way to start this season. In other series, we also covered The Killers, based on Hemingway's short story.
1: A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire.
0: Beckett, A Boy and His Dog, The Princess Bride, Congo.
1: The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Woman in Black.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on
1: Audible. Andy, I think it's probably time we should rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and, uh, and, and sign in to your account because you know by now you have one. And I want you to just search for the Wizard of Oz. And what you're going to see is a little thing. It's going to say add to my, uh, add to my flickchart. And you're going to say yes. And then the first movie that comes up, if you're ranking like we are, filmo a filmo is the Wizard of Oz versus Q Andy.
0: First up, this is, uh, you know, we talked about last week, Stagecoach was going to be our new, uh, you know, the block. Yeah. Wizard of Oz or Stagecoach? Wizard of Oz. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, the movies from 1939 so far, this and uh, Mr. Smith are yeah. really the two that stand out for me. That's right. So. Wizard of Oz or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Pete? Mm. Well, Eternal Sunshine for me. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm dwelling on that one for a I I think in the long run, boy, is it really is just Eternal Sunshine? Straight up, that easy for you?
1: Yeah, it is. And and you know, in my own flick chart, I'll I'll tell you, Wizard of Oz is. Um, you know it's it's not a top 10 movie it's a top 100 movie i mean i it's certainly in my i think it's in my top 50 um yeah. so but but there are definitely movies that if i had them side by side filmo a uh, filmo i would do a 53 mine is my personal is, is 53 so i there are just there are movies that i i would put on first and eternal sunshine is one of them
0: yeah it's so tricky i mean i i think i'm gonna go with eternal sunshine um I'm also, surprised this was but, hard
1: for you. I think Eternal Sunshine, that's one of your very favorites. No, series. it is.
0: But it's just, the, you know, The Wizard of Oz, the place that it has, like, in my yeah. heart, I guess. It's just one of those films where I feel like there's something there's something about that film that will last for eternity for me. And I'm just dwelling on that. Like, is Eternal Sunshine going to have that? But in the end, I mean, yes, I think you're right. Eternal Sunshine, I probably would would say, is a stronger story. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So I'm going to do Eternal Sunshine. Boy, boy, that really was hard for me, though. <laughs> I don't know if I'm you glad know. you worked through it. You did great. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. This, <laughs> these are good counseling sessions for Oh, yeah. uh, The Wizard of Oz or Sunshine? little Danny Boyle space action.
1: I'll give you Wizard of Oz on this one.
0: Yeah, this is Wizard of Oz for me. The Wizard of Oz or... What is it going to be? The Wizard of Oz or about a boy? Wizard of Oz. <sighs> boy. Really? Yeah. I, I love About a Boy. I mean, that to me is like just such a, a perfect, uh, kind of a, that, that kind of romantic comedy, just character relationship sort of film. Oi, I'm going to say Wizard of Oz though. That's a tough mm. one for me. I'm having a this tough time really with this one. really
1: n- traumatic.
0: I, it is. The Wizard of Oz are for a few dollars more. <sighs> this was your favorite.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go a few your, dollars more. Your
0: favorite of the trilogy? Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna go Wizard of Oz. Really? Yeah. If it was, if it was, because mine was Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. If it was Good, Bad, and the Ugly, I would probably pick that one. Oh,
1: okay, so I should feel okay about this about yeah. going to the mat on it.
0: Yeah, and I'm a little torn because I'm, I'm feeling like I may actually say for a few dollars more now. The more I think about it. <laughs> I'm having a really dramatic time with this. I love this. Oh, my goodness. This is
1: just delightful.
0: No, oh, it's torture. I, I'm going to stick with Wizard of Oz.
1: Okay. Whew. But, yeah, well, let's, let's, let's do let's it. Let's do it, then. All right. Okay. One, One two, two, three, three paper. paper. One, two, two three, three,
2: scissors. Scissors.
1: <laughs> One, two, three, three paper. paper. <laughs> Grave minds. Uh, one, one, two, two three. three. Scissors. Oh, <laughs> one of us had to break.
0: Exactly. The Wizard of Oz or The Outlaw Josie Wales. I do Wizard of Oz. Yeah, Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz or Sleepless in Seattle.
1: I I have a hard time seeing this not it, scratching the same itch for you. Yeah,
0: it really. Does. this is tricky I
1: uh I'm going to say sleepless I, I don't care I would do either one <laughs> you can have it okay. I don't care
0: wow that's a first on this I don't care <laughs> Ah oh, man. I all would, right,
1: well, th- is that not an appropriate answer if we're sitting down and all we have is two aged VHS tapes of Sleepless you in have Seattle? To pick, and you have to make a choice. And you tell me you have to pick. And I say, I don't care. We're not going to watch a movie. Is that the deal?
0: You have to pick. That was a hard one. i picked pick for you. What, yeah,
1: whatever you pick.
0: Yeah. Well, I obviously picked for you because otherwise we'd be doing, going to the mat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Over I don't care and exactly. your choice.
0: It's crazy. All right. Well, hey, we're at number 62 on our list. All so right.
1: I, I, that's I right. think that's
0: good. I feel like it could have been higher. So but Top I, you know, 100 I, film. Yeah, it's, it is up there. This film is really up there. All right.
1: A top 100 film and a two-hour conversation about it. What are you going to do? I think it's clear that we love it. I think it is clear that we love it and, and that it has, it's, it has a, a rightful place. It is a, a movie of innocence and wonder and it is beautifully put together, beautifully restored. And, uh, it's just a treat to watch for the whole family. And I can say that without uh, any drip of insincerity. Absolutely. What is your, uh, how, what does this do for your, uh, letterbox review? I, I imagine for you it's, uh, three and a half, four stars. <laughs> I mean it's a five star for me, but I, I know that this has been difficult for you, so
0: it has been difficult, but it's it's a five star. I mean, are you kidding? This is just yeah. like one of those films that just is burned into my brain. So this is a, a perma five star for me.
1: Perma five star.
0: Yeah. It'll it'll never drop. This film just it, it just is impossible for this film to ever uh drop stars. It's just you know, this is a perfect example of what cinema can do.
1: All right, I'll take it. I think that's all we have to say, Andy. So for now I have got to go
0: to bed. Very well. I'll bide my time. And as for you, my fine lady, it's true I can't attend to you here and now as I'd like. But just try to stay out of my way.
2: Just try. I'll
0: get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. <laughs>
1: Andy, uh, there are not many people who dislike the film on Amazon, but there are some. And you will find, uh, a customer on June 8th of 2004 gave in this one star gem. What? Classic? Classic? This is one of the worst films ever made. I don't ever want to watch it again. The last time I watched part of it was in third grade. Yuck. It's disgusting. Right down there with Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, License to Kill, and the special editions of the original Star Wars trilogy. Yuck. 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 If anyone says, hey, watch this film, schedule an immediate root canal. If anyone pays you to see it, jump into a live shark's mouth. If anyone holds a gun to your head and forces you to see it, pull the trigger.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
1: I try to go with the most understated of the reviews each week. I think you can see I succeeded with this one. That is fantastic. Well, I have a one-star also
0: by uh, Professor E. Loftus. Mm. It says, false memory syndrome and toto. Reviewing The Wizard of Oz, the central premise of this movie is that Dorothy falls victim to some sort of trauma, be it a tornado sweeping across the prairie and damaging her house, or something more sinister. This is left uncertain, as is often the case in real life, most unfortunately. In any case, the victim, Dorothy, then regresses in the form of classic PTSD with psychotic episodes to the land of Oz. There she assembles her false memories with metaphors for swarms of bombers filling the skies, good and bad witches possibly representing a schizoid mother figure, and three male entities who each must overcome their innate stupidity, anxiety, and lack of emotion. These concepts probably originated with comments made by the mother, and therefore appear impossible for the real person they refer to to overcome probably an ineffective and emotionally devoid father. The intense hope that Dorothy has for this, coupled with the irrational impossibility for the figures to overcome the deficits, is due to her anguish in competing with her mother and the fact that her father is unable to save her from the mother's tantrums. The FMS relates to the desire for the three components of the father figure to be erased and become complete in their respective sense. The hope has distorted her thinking, and there is absolutely no evidence to proceed with the prosecution of this line of storytelling. However, in the end, her mother does believe her, and she returns safe and sound to Kansas, so there is indeed hope. Therefore, I give the film a one.
1: (laughs) I don't know what their intention was with that. (laughs) I do
0: not know. Especially because uh, Dorothy was raised by her aunt and uncle, not her...
1: Her I I guess Dorothy
0: is her... Our Aunt M is her mother figure. Or, or is
1: the mother supposed to be the mother, Glinda, that she sees in Oz and the father figure, the surrogate father figure, the three male figures, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion? I have no idea, Pete. I just
0: really have no idea. <laughs> I think Professor E. Loftus is putting a lot of interesting misdirected thought into this film.
1: Wow. Thanks, Amazon.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to learn more about membership, head on over to nextreelcom slash membership, where you can see how you can support the show. Thanks, everybody.